Salvation is only found in God, not in any human king. For my Savior loves me so, He will hold me fast, He will hold me fast, He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, He will hold me fast. Good morning. Five years ago, there was an article that appeared in the New York Times titled, What's the Cure for Ailing Nations? More kings and queens, monarchists say. One of those interviewed in the article was a man by the name of Count Nikolai Tolstoy, a distant relative of Leo Tolstoy, who holds dual Russian and British citizenship, and who at least at the time of the article led the International Monarchist League. So monarchists are those who believe that a monarchy is the best form of government. Monarchists often argue that royal families act as a uniting force and symbol, rising above politics and providing stability for the country that they rule. Count Tolstoy was quoted as saying that he supports the retention and restoration of monarchies anywhere in the world. He and his fellow monarchists make it their goal to persuade people of this way of thinking. Granted, his group advocates constitutional monarchies in which the king or queen is head of state and the political power rests in an elected parliament. He's not advocating going back to times when the king or queen had unchecked power. But whatever the case in our world today, there are those who continue to want a king or queen. And at the same time, there are those who will continue to advocate for other forms of government. It's hard to imagine certain countries changing their current political system. Like when we think of a country, we often think of its political leaders. And yet, a great number of countries have changed systems in the past century. And if you think back even further, think back 500 years ago, who could have predicted what kinds of political systems, what kinds of forms of governments exist in our world today? But from another perspective, it also seems like there's not that much new under the sun. Whatever system you may advocate there are certain things you want from your government or your country. You want a leader or leaders you can be proud of, someone respected on the world stage. You want a strong enough military or at least strong enough alliances that other countries cannot take advantage of your country. You want stability and peace. You want to enjoy a multitude of benefits for being a citizen and reasonably low taxes. And these things are all not bad things to want. But ultimately, why is it that we want these things? And perhaps more importantly, ultimately from whose hand should we expect these things? In our sermon passage this morning, we are continuing in the book of 1 Samuel. 
and we're coming to a major turning point in Israel's history. So please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 3. 1 Samuel 7. It's also printed in your bulletin. This morning we'll be studying for 1 Samuel 7, verse 3, until the end of chapter 8. So remember Samuel? From the first verse of Samuel chapter 4 until this morning's passage, we haven't heard from Samuel or of Samuel. Instead, we followed the story of the Ark of the Covenant. We've seen, we've heard of the deaths of Hophni and Phinehas and Eli. We've seen God's judgment. We witnessed how God deposed a corrupt priesthood and a corrupt judge and opened the way for Samuel to lead God's people. So this morning we pick back up on Samuel's story. In the person of Samuel, God gave Israel a faithful judge. But this season of repentance and peace led by Samuel will not continue with another godly judge. By the end of our passage this morning, the people of Israel are demanding that Samuel appoint for them a king. Before we jump into the passage, I'd like to set a framework by introducing a main point for our passage, and the main point is this. Salvation is only found in God, not in any human king. Salvation is only found in God not in any human king. The main point will be developed in the two points of this morning's sermon. Salvation through God's judge, that's chapter 7, verses 3 to 7, verse 22. And then point two is captivity through man's king. Salvation through God's judge, captivity through man's king. So let's begin with point one, salvation through God's judge. Please look with me beginning at 1 Samuel 7, verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah, now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. 
And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Last week we ended on a sad note in Israel. The ark was back in Israel, but it wasn't in its appropriate place. And a long time, 20 years passed. The final phrase before our passage today was, All the house of Israel lamented before the Lord, lamented after the Lord. There was a godly grief, there was a lamenting after God that was occurring among the people of Israel. And that was a good step towards true repentance. In this section of chapter 7, God delivers his people, and he uses Samuel in the process. God delivers through the judge he appointed, just as he did so many times in the book of Judges. The people cry out to God and repent, and God delivers his people through the judge he provided for them. Verses 3 to 4 show that lamenting after God is not enough. Samuel expected the lamenting of the Israelites to turn into action. And so he tells them that if they're truly turning to God, if they're truly repenting of their sins, to to put away all their foreign gods and Ashtaroth and serve the Lord only, then God will deliver them. And the people of Israel listen and obey. They put away their idols and they serve God only. Samuel is simply teaching the starting point of all the Israelite law and the Ten Commandments. God said, you shall have no other gods before me. And the people of Israel listen, and they obey. They put away their idols. They serve God only. This is a good reminder for us today that repentance involves action. Repentance does not end with sorrow over sin. It can begin there. It continues on with putting away any idols that we have in our lives. So brothers and sisters, do we actively seek to to put away idols? Do we actively seek to put away anything that gets in the way of our worship of God? Are we willing to sacrifice pleasures of this world and of our flesh in order to worship God wholeheartedly. Next, in verses 5 to 11, Samuel calls all of Israel to gather to him at Mizpah, where he'll pray to the Lord for them. Here Samuel acts as mediator. 
He stands on behalf of the people of Israel in order to pray to the Most Holy God. First, he confesses the sin of the people. Then, as all this is going on, word gets out that the Philistines are gathering to attack Israel. And so the people say to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Do you hear from the requests of the Israelites how their attitude has changed? Compared to 1 Samuel chapter 4, in which there was no prayer, only a discussion among the Israelite elders of thinking through a, a method of winning. Here in 1 Samuel 7, the Israelites acknowledge their helplessness and their reliance on God. Instead of trying to manipulate God, the Israelites ask Samuel to cry out to God on their behalf. They finally realize they're completely reliant on God's help. So brothers and sisters, instead of trying to force God into getting what we want, as we saw the Israelites try to do in chapter 4, let's learn from the example here of simply crying out to God for salvation. This attitude has the Israelites in a good position spiritually. They understood that they could not save themselves. They had already put away any of their idols, so they knew they would not call out to deaf idols when they were in danger. They realized their only hope was in God, and Samuel cried out to God on their behalf. How we approach prayer shows what we believe about God and what we believe about our relationship with God. Because we believe that God truly rules over all of history and over us today, we pray. Because we believe that only God can change our own hearts and change the hearts of someone of others, we pray. Because we believe because, that God is all-powerful and that he also cares for us, we pray. We're not always going to be faced by the kinds of dangers that the Israelites knew they were facing that caused them to cry out to God. When we face danger and difficulty, that could be good for us in causing us to pray. But when things seem to be going well, let's be just as aware of the fact that we need to pray. Let's be just as aware of the fact that we can't do it on our own. And let's care enough for the souls of those around us that we pray for them. Understanding who God is and our, our continual need for God's help drives our prayers every Sunday morning. For example, when we pray for specific members on a Sunday morning, we do so knowing that God is the one who by His Spirit works to change us. And so we pray together for one another, for other churches, for our nation, for the world. And for members of WSBC, consider how you pray for one another both on your own and together. A good way to, to better understand how we can pray together and for the needs of the church is to, is to regularly attend our evening prayer services. Come ready to pray, come ready to share. 
And let's not only be crying out to God with our own needs or with your own needs, but be crying out to God on behalf of other members. The same God who thundered in power to defeat the Philistine army is the same God who is waiting to hear your prayers and is ready to deliver and protect his people. Prayer may seem like a very normal thing to do. If a casual observer observed our Sunday evening prayer service, it might appear quite ordinary. A bunch of people sitting around an apartment talking and then closing their eyes and talking to God out loud. But remember what we're doing. There's something supernatural going on when we pray. We're reminded that the power does not lie in us. Remember who it is we are praying to. We're praying to the Almighty God. We don't know how God will answer, but we do know that God listens to the prayers of his children. Samuel had the joy of hearing and seeing God's answer to his prayer on behalf of the people of Israel. So Samuel offered a sacrifice and Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. In 1 Samuel 4, the Israelites were slaughtered. They expected God to fight for them because they had brought the Ark of the Covenant into battle. In 1 Samuel 7, the Israelites cried out for God's mercy. They knew that only God could save them. And God saved Israel by thundering against the Philistines and throwing their entire army into confusion. Chapter 4 had the Israelites running. Chapter 7 had the Israelites chasing the Philistines. Here we see God answer the prayers of a helpless people who have given up their idols to worship God and God alone. In remembrance of what God has done, Samuel set up a stone. He called the stone Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. If you remember the hymn, Come Thou Font of Every, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, there's a line in that hymn, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I come. That hymn is remembering again this Ebenezer stone, the meaning that, that God is our help. We see things like this happen at, at different points in Scripture. God's people set up something to help them remember what God has done. For example, consider the ten, not ten, twelve, memorial stones that the Israelites set up after they crossed the Jordan on dry ground. These were meant to be a memorial, a reminder to Israel of what God had done. Just as the Israelites were prone to forgetting what God had done and could be helped by tangible reminders, we as Christians today are still prone to forget and in need of reminders of what God has done. 
The first place we can look for reminders of what God has done in history is in God's Word. We can remember what God has done through Jesus Christ by reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We can remember the compassion that God displayed towards humanity at the cross. And we can be reminded of God's great plan of salvation all throughout the Bible, all throughout the Scriptures. And so when we're prone to forget, it's good for us to be able to go back again and again to God's Word. In addition to looking at God's Word, we can also remember how God has been faithful to us in our own lives. We can remember how God saved us. We can remember how God provided for us and brought us through difficult seasons of our lives. It's so easy to forget these things when we're faced with new difficulties or new challenges. But it's so good to remember what God has done. So what are helpful ways for you to remember how God has been faithful to you? And you can be creative about it. Also, let us share with one another how God has been faithful to us. There may come a day when when you feel like forgetting these different ways that God has been faithful to you, but perhaps a, a brother or sister in the church can remind you. Remember when God brought you through this or through that season of your life. We have witnessed God's faithfulness to us, how God has helped us up until this day. And we have the privilege and opportunity of reminding one another of that. Verse 13 continues that the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And it says, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Because of God's protective hand, God gave the Israelites peace all the time that Samuel was acting as judge over Israel. And Samuel would continue as judge all the days of his life. He would go from city to city acting as judge. We should remember as well that not only was Samuel acting as a judge, as we, as we think of today, holding court, but he was seeking to do so in a way that honored God. He was showing the people how God's law applied to their lives. The decisions that Samuel made were based on his understanding of God's word. And Samuel held a unique position in, in not only being a judge, but in acting as God's prophet and God's priest during that time. So the time that Samuel judged was a, was a blessed time in Israel's history. God delivered, God continued to protect his people from their enemies. Even land that had been taken from Israel was given back to Israel. So God worked salvation and God worked deliverance through his appointed leader. As the people of Israel worshipped God as God, God continued to bless Israel. Samuel is a, a model of a godly leader 
after some of the corruption, manipulation, crazy stuff going on in the last few chapters, it's good to take a breath and be reminded of the kind of peaceful lives that God wants to give His people as they put away their idols and worship Him. The judge that God had chosen for Israel, the last judge God had chosen for Israel, was exactly who they needed to help them turn back to God and worship Him and Him alone. And so God saved. It's God who saved. And He did so through His judge. The good seasons of true worship of God under a godly leader would come to an end in Israel. The next few words of chapter 8 will say, when Samuel became old, Samuel isn't going to live forever. And there would have to be some change after Samuel died. But the change that Israel would ask for would not bring a smile to Samuel's face. Here we come to point two, captivity through man's king. Captivity through man's king. Here we'll read all of chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the king displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, 
that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man, to his city. At the beginning of chapter 8, we see that Samuel has made his sons judges in Israel. This likely was not a good idea. In the book of Judges, God raises up judges, but it's not a position that is meant to be passed on from father to son to son's son, necessarily. Beersheba was quite some distance from where Samuel was, so it may have taken some time for Samuel to hear about the wrong that his sons were doing. Sadly, Samuel's sons eerily sound like the sons of Eli. They were taking bribes, they were perverting justice. They're doing exactly the opposite of what they are meant to be doing in their role as judges, just as Eli's sons were doing exactly the opposite of what they were meant to be doing in their role as priests. So this sets the stage for Israel's request. But if we look closer at what the Israelites were requesting, it seems that the corruption of the sons of Samuel is not the main reason for their request. It's more like an excuse for their request. Instead, they list other reasons. So the elders of Israel have come to Samuel to bring their request. They remind him that he's old and that his sons do not follow his example. And then they ask that Samuel appoint a king to judge them, like all the nations. This is a key phrase to consider. We'll come back to it again. The Israelites wanted to be like all the nations. That was a huge factor in their asking for a king. This request causes Samuel to pray. Just as in chapter 7, Samuel prays to God. And as a prophet whose role it is to speak God's word to the people, God first speaks to Samuel. The Lord says to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. The people are supposed to be obeying God. But here the Lord tells Samuel to obey the voice of the people. He tells Samuel that this is not a rejection of Samuel. This is a rejection of God himself. God speaks of how from the day he brought them up out of Egypt, the Israelites have been forsaking him and serving other gods. It seems like the Israelites have forgotten the Ebenezer stone in chapter 7. They've forgotten how God saved them in chapter 7 and the peace that Israel had when they feared the Lord when Samuel, with Samuel as their judge. Remember the protection that God provided for Israel. A protection that, in which no king was necessary. No king other than God. 
But here Israel wants a human king. They want a king to judge them, to be like the other nations. Later in verse 20, we read that they want this king to go before them and fight their battles. So Israel has forgotten who delivered them from the hand of the Philistines at Mizpah. It was God throwing the Philistines into confusion. But how prone are we to make the same mistake that the Israelites did? How prone are we to, to forget that God is God and to, to want to reject God in a similar way to how the Israelites did? The main motivator for the re Israelites' rejection of God as king was that they wanted to be like all the nations. But remember how God created Israel to be separate from all the nations, to be different. And so often, even as Christians today, we want to live like non-Christians. There's parts of us that want to be just like the people around us. In our world today, it's likely going to be less and less cool to be a Christian. We're probably going to be thought of as more and more backward, more and more intolerant, and more and more anti-science than ever before. So there are certain ways that we live our lives that will seem more and more strange to non-Christians around us as our culture changes. And so in those situations, are you willing to do what is right, even if it seems that the whole world thinks you're, you're old-fashioned or backward or intolerant? One example, and maybe you've thought of this example, especially if you've traveled overseas recently or if you work in an international setting, Christians are often thought of as intolerant in regards to, to what we think of homosexuality and the entire LGBTQ plus movement. I have had non-Christian Chinese friends as well who, upon hearing that I'm a Christian, say something along the lines of, oh, oh, you're a Christian. Like, do you hate gay people? And I imagine that they've seen videos of, of angry people protesting. And it's sad that that's the picture that they think of when they think of the attitude of Christians. But even the most loving response that we make still might sound intolerant to many. And I do want to clarify, a person being a person is enough reason for all of us as Christians to love that person and not to hate that person. We have more reason than anyone to value a person because we believe that person is made in the image of God. And so that's where I would want to start in talking to someone who thinks I might hate them for who they are. But I also believe it's loving to help someone see when they are sinning. Just as it is loving for others to help me see when I'm sinning. 
And when it comes to sexual sin, there are not certain sexual sins that have stopped becoming sins as the culture has changed. The sins of Hophni and Phineas in having sex outside of marriage is just as sinful today as it was back then. The sin of having homosexual relations is just as sinful today as when Paul taught on it in the book of Romans. These are sins that go against what marriage was designed to be like. This goes back to how God created Adam and Eve in the first marriage. And it may be tempting for us to want to be just like the rest of the world and think just like the rest of the world. We don't want to appear intolerant or be called backwards. We don't want to be on the wrong side of history, whatever that means. And so there's this temptation to fit in with the world. In light of our changing culture today, the section on on human sexuality and marriage was added to WSBC's statement of faith. This is an example where we believe that God's word on this topic has not changed because God's word does not change. But our culture's view on this topic has changed. And so the elders at WSBC and the church as a whole thought it wise to add this section to our statement of faith. This is one area of our faith, especially today, in which the world will try to get us to compromise. But instead, as a church, we have agreed that we must uphold what the Bible teaches on this topic. And when we hold on to the truth of what the Bible teaches, we likely will find ourselves quite different than those around us. And we may not like that feeling. Not only did the Israelites want to be like the other nations, but they also wanted a figurehead. They wanted a king to judge them to go before them, to fight their battles. They wanted someone they could look to and be proud of and say, oh, that is our king. They wanted someone of their own choice as king. Some of you may be familiar with the the Two Ways to Live gospel tract. It has some helpful pictures in thinking on who God is and God's relationship to us. The first image is a a crown over the world, showing and picturing that, that God is the ruler. God is the king of this world. This is how things are created to be. And if you flip the page, you see that that we as humans have taken the crown and put it above our own heads. We want to be king of our own lives. We don't want to acknowledge God's kingship. This is what Israel was doing in asking for a king. The Israelites wanted to take this decision of of who is king over their lives and, and have that in their own hands. And so often or really, I would say anyone who is not a Christian still has themselves as king over their own lives. When you ask someone what they believe or who they believe in, 
so many people today will say, oh, I believe in myself. Because it's so common to want to be in control. To not want to have anyone else telling you what to do or, or feel that you have to answer to anyone. So my prayer for you is if, if you are someone who says, I believe in myself, my prayer for you is that you would see that you are not trustworthy. You're not worthy of your own trust. You have limitations. When you're sick, you cannot heal yourself. You have blind spots. And you have sin. You aren't God. None of us are God, and we shouldn't act like we are. Continuing to look at the passage, God does not only tell Samuel to obey the people, but he also tells Samuel first to warn the people of what will happen when or if they have a king. Looking at verses 10 to 18, you can see the, the repetition of the words, he will take, he will take. This king will take your sons and daughters. This king will take the best of your fields, a tenth of your grain, your male and female servants, and a tenth of your flocks. Summing it all up, this king will take you. You will be his slaves. And there will come a day when you will cry out to the Lord because of your king, but the Lord will not answer you. This is quite the warning. God is warning the Israelites what will happen if he gives them what they want. This is not to say that this was not part of God's plan. We see from Deuteronomy chapter 17 there were already instructions for when God knew that Israel would ask for a king. But just because God knew that Israel would ask for a king doesn't mean that Israel should have asked for a king in this manner with this attitude of wanting a king to be like the other nations, of wanting a king to replace God, their king. So yes, God knew hundreds of years before Samuel that the Israelites would ask for a king. And so Samuel warns them. The Israelites simply refused to, to heed the warnings. And so in verse 22, God says again to Samuel, obey their voice and give them a king. God's people wanted a king of their own cho choosing, and what they didn't know or what they didn't believe was that this king would take them captive. So many of the future kings of Israel would fit this model of, of taking and taking from the people. God would give Israel what they wanted, but what Israel wanted is not what Israel truly needed. Eventually, the kings of Israel would be carted off to foreign lands. The people would be in exile. There would be no more kings in Israel. Until God would send the king that Israel truly needed. And so King Jesus is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. King Jesus is the king that Israel needed and that Israel was waiting for. King Jesus is unlike the kings of the nations. 
He is perfect. He lives and he reigns forever. King Jesus came not to take and take, but he came to give. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, if you're here today and you, you still want to be king of your own life, the, the Christians in this room want to introduce you to, to King Jesus. He gave up his life. He died for you. He gave up his life so that you could have true life. The response that Jesus desires of you is that you, you turn from your sins and you follow Jesus. You believe that he is who he says he is and you, you repent. You turn from your sins and turn to him. He is the king of the universe. God himself in human form died so that you can be delivered from the enemies of sin and death. So often kings treat their subjects like slaves. But Jesus set us free from our sins. Let's remember that when we're tempted to compromise, when we're tempted to go back to old masters, when we're tempted to live like this world does. Jesus set us free from slavery to sin from our old master. And he is our new master. He gave us new life. We've been given a new spirit and new desires. Jesus suffered, died, and rose again so that we can one day rule and reign with him. We don't need a king of our own choosing. We need a king of God's own choosing. And that king is Jesus. And so we do not cry out in pain and suffering because of our king, as the Israelites would one day cry out. Instead, we're free to cry out to our king, knowing that he hears our prayers. We bring our requests and our pleas before King Jesus. And we thank Jesus for coming, for dying, for rising again. And we pray that Jesus would come again, that he would come again soon. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise you for you are king and you sent your son to rule and to reign. And he is the anointed one. Lord, we do Pray that you would continue to change us. That we would be not lured by the temptations of this world, but that we would put away any idols, that we would continue to fear you, continue to worship you as king, continue to follow you. Lord, we pray that we would pray for one another, that we would spur one another on and remind one another of your faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, for how you show us Christ. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.